You are now listening to Films for the Void. Welcome to Films for the Void, episode number 70. I am your host, Landon DeFever, and joining me as always is the co-host who's currently unavailable at the moment, but if you leave your name and a short message, he'll get back to you as soon as possible. The elusive Eric Spitz. Eric, how have you been doing lately? <laughs> I've been doing great. And uh, yeah, elusive is a, a great word for this episode. I was wondering which direction you were going to take with this. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, when you jump to the title one missed call, like the intro for your co-host, that's a little cheeky, sort of just writes itself. But <laughs> I, I appreciate the benefit of the doubt that I'm actually clever. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's uh, I mean, yeah, very logical decision, but definitely not disappointed by it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I will. I will. I will. I will. Next episode in future episodes, I will try to be a little bit more clever. But sometimes <laughs> it's a new year and you just want to go with what's there. But anyway, that, of course, was a reference to Eric Vallette's 2008 film One Missed Call, which we'll be having a full spoiler discussion on later in the episode. But before we begin, did you know that we have a Patreon? For just $3 a month, you can access all sorts of extra goodies, such as early episodes, good conversation, and even the chance to pick an upcoming main topic movie. If any of that interests you, head on over to patreon.com slash films underscore void and sign up today. Now that that's out of the way, Eric, what do you say we get into this episode's anniversary pick? Yeah, let's do it. So for this episode's anniversary pick, I have chosen Mark Waters' 2004 film Mean Girls for us to talk about in honor of its 20th anniversary. And the plot of the movie is Katie Heron is a hit with the plastics, the A-list girl click at her new school, until she makes the mistake of falling for Aaron Samuels, the ex-boyfriend of Alpha Plastic Regina George. Um, that's a weird way to phrase the plot, honestly. I don't know. But anyway, um, I haven't really I haven't read the plot until literally just now. It, it, and it's weird too when you have seen a movie like this dozens and dozens and dozens of times, because obviously this is a very nostalgic pick for both of us. We mm. were around eleven or thirteen when this came out in theaters, so we were right in that preteen, early teen demographic that this movie was sort of catering to. And oddly enough, it stood the test of time in the world of pop culture, I'd say. Uh, it's still beloved. It was a big breakout hit for everyone involved, especially Lindsay Lohan, Rachel McAdams, and Amanda Seyfried. But more than anything, I wanted to talk about it now since the film is getting a bit of a makeover this month uh, as the film was adapted into a musical in 2017 and was nominated for 12 Tonys and is now getting the big screen treatment. So I figured why not talk about the original in retrospect? So Eric, um, question, did you watch Mean Girls growing up or was this your first time watching it? Uh, I did watch this growing up. So, uh, th yeah, this is the first time I've revisited it in probably over a decade at this point. I think the last time oh, I wow, watched okay. it was, <laughs> yeah, probably like, probably 2009, 2010 range. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's been a minute. <laughs> like, like you said, though, it, it definitely holds up in, in large part. Yeah, I would say so, too. I, and it's uh, coming from someone that really liked this movie growing up. It was definitely one of my favorites when I was 
Um, it was for one of the first PG-13 movies, I think, that was more, like, targeted towards, like, the demographic I was than, than something like, oh, like, hey, you watched Forrest Gump. That's sort of just a movie for everybody. You know what I mean? Like, I watched mm-hmm. that, obviously, when I was, like, eight or nine. But, um, but it was the first time I'd ever seen a PG-13 movie or one of them that was, like, targeted towards me. Like, School of Rock, I think, came a little bit before that. But that doesn't even deserve a PG-13. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I really like this movie still a lot. Um, I, I think it still holds up in most regards. I, I still think it's very funny. It's it's very clever and tongue in cheek. And I've seen that. And unlike you, Eric, I've seen this movie probably once every other year for the last 20 years. Sometimes <laughs> I've seen it twice in a year. Sometimes I'll skip a year, but it's a very regular rotation. It's it's very much a comfort watch for me. And uh, but yeah, what stood out to you coming back to this over a decade later from when you last watched it? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, yeah. So even though like the team teen comedy drama genre is often beat to death. I mean, Mean Girls has a way of standing out just through a mixture of fleshed out memorable characters, the film's positive message beneath the brash exterior. And just, I forgot how quotable this movie is. This movie is so damn quotable. (laughs) Oh yeah, It, it really is. Especially in the pantheon of, this falls into that sort of realm of, teen comedy like um sort of anchorman i think falls into this where this was a little bit pre-internet as well so mm-hmm. this is one of those films where you sort of latch on to the quotes themselves and uh, i saw a funny tweet not too long ago that was something along the lines of before t- um before the internet men would just sit in a circle and quote anchorman to <laughs> each other and i was like one that is incredibly true uh-huh. and two it was that mo- movie was also around the same time as this movie i think it came out the same year and was targeted to the same sort of demographic so really like when you were in 2004 and sometimes you didn't have access to the internet you would latch on to movies that you really connected with and found funny and were very quotable like this and I think the big reason this film still holds its own compared to a lot of other like like stupid like lesser teen comedies is because of Tina Fey's script I I really feel like that is that is the big reason why this film holds up so well is because it reeks of that early 2000s SNL sense of humor and wit and bite. And it really has a voice to it that I think Faye, who wrote the screenplay, um, really, really does a great job of capturing. And I I feel like it's really held up because um, of her voice and what she was able to add to it. Because this movie was actually not Faye's original idea. It was, um, she obviously took some, she took some aspects from, the uh the book Queen Bees and Wannabes, who I'm not sure who wrote the book, but I looked it up after I rewatched this, and it's actually a sociology textbook of sorts. It's not even like a narrative that she um took from the original text. She actually went on, she took this like sociology textbook and mm-hmm. made a story out of it and made characters and and found ways to um adapt it into a feature film. And I find that really admirable, honestly. I think that's a really interesting way of um, yeah, like finding a new story and a new direction for something that inspired you. So that's a big reason why I think this movie works so well. Oh, for sure. And yeah, uh, Rosalind Wiseman is the, uh, is the author Thank of you. Queen Bees and Wannabes. Yep. I had that in my notes okay. as well, which, yeah, I thought that was really interesting while doing research on this. Uh, I didn't know that yeah. was the origin of it necessarily. You know, it's funny too. I, I almost recommended this for uh, the last episode of void because it was, um, well, then the the orders got switched around a little bit. So episode mm-hmm. 69 um, what ended up being a little bit sooner than I was expecting. So I switched my pick around a little bit because I was going to pick this for my Christmas <laughs> pick because 
one of the best scenes in the movie is a Christmas scene. And I, I actually do kind of associate this movie with Christmas in a way, but at the same time, who wants to hear about Christmas in January? Like we're all, we're all tired of that. I, I don't want to get into that, but um, is there anything else that really stands out to you about this movie or like revisiting it later? No, I'm glad you brought up the Christmas tie. Cause I was going to ask you if you considered this a Christmas movie. Cause I think the argument could be made because of that scene. Yeah. hundred percent. I, I feel like Christmas is, at the apex where a lot of the drama comes in because she uses, um, Katie uses the candy cane grams to mm-hmm. sort of um, fuck with Regina's friend, um, Gretchen Wieners. Uh, she like screws with her a little bit yep. and tries to um, get in her head by like pretend sending uh, a candy cane from Regina, quote unquote, to herself and screws with her plant, like uses that against her. So Gretchen starts to crack under the pressure of not being that like second in command that she like strives to be. And uh, I don't know. I, I find that really interesting of a I, I find that really interesting of a plot line. And yeah, I, I like a lot of these characters. There's a lot of specific moments and things that jump out. Are there any characters that jumped out at you? Oh, so many. I mean, <laughs> yeah, they they all are, are really fleshed out and kind of what I, I think one thing that really stood out to me in particular um, that makes us stand out with the other teen dramas as well is that you have kind of the sub genre of clicks in high school too that they focus on which i thought was pretty cool too so you had obviously freshmen rotc guys perhaps jv jocks asian nerds cool asians varsity jocks you know like the list goes on and on of just all these different characters that you definitely had in your high school that i feel like weren't explicitly labeled that i thought was uh kind of funny so that i don't know that that whole uh the attention to detail there of the I feel like every single character is fleshed out in a way, even if they don't have a large role in this film. So I think that's what also really makes it stand out is that it's not necessarily mindless, generic jock. It's like these very specific subgenres of jocks. I also really like I also like this movie a lot too because I feel like it's it's interesting because we also our last anniversary pick we talked about a Christmas story and I feel like oddly enough this film has some things in common with that film structurally mm-hmm. and I think a big reason why both these films work is that there is like one central theme or mission in mind by the main character like Ralphie wants a BB gun Katie wants revenge on this girl that took her in and stole mm-hmm. this boyfriend that she really likes sort of thing and wants revenge. And then the structure is basically set up in a series of vignettes that go along. Like we get the holiday party. We get the, can- we get the Christmas stuff. We mm-hmm. get the, um, the eventual blow up by Regina and like that party. Like there's a bunch of like individual sets and things that work really well. And, um, yeah, I also want to give out a, a shout out to director Mark Waters, who it's interesting. I think this is the only film he's directed that I le- think is legit really good. I think, I, I think Freaky Friday is also kind of, it's fine. It's cute. It's very, it's very dated. I think at this point it, it's kind yeah. of corny, but I, I still, I get why people like it. But at the same time though, I don't think he's really done anything since then that I can think of that. I'm like, Oh yeah, Mark Waters, he did that. Like, no, I, I think he just sort of lucked out and, and got assigned to this, but he still mm-hmm. does a good job at the direction. Yeah, I would agree with that. The only other thing I've seen from Mark Waters is Freaky Friday, which I, I thought was fine. I thought it was all right. You know, we also got He's All That, Just Like Heaven, Mr. Popper's Penguins, Ugh. Bad Santa I forgot. Too. Oh, fuck. I forgot he did He's uh, All That. Yeah. I've been trying to block that movie out of Oof. my brain. Um, yeah. <laughs> Ghosts of Girlfriends Past and Bad Santa too. Like, he feels uh, like, I think he's very much a director for hire. Like, oh, yeah, he did that thing. Like, yeah. let's try and inject him into this. 
So yeah, I think Mean Girls is the only thing that I'm seeing on here. I'm looking at his filmography that I would say is really strong. Everything yeah. else is just kind of cute or horrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thought I did kind of have too is, I mean, do you think Mean Girls... Well, actually, that's kind of a stupid question because they are remaking, you know, Mean Girls and giving it yeah. the on-screen treatment there. Because I do wonder what, because I've not seen, um, I've not seen the play or anything like that. I wonder I how either. much of it of of the original content has actually changed because I feel like obviously they're going to update a few things, but I imagine the integrity is going to be the same. But yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm interested yeah. to see what it's going to be like because I, I've noticed that there's a little bit of a trend hopping up that people have pointed out with Mean Girls, The Color Purple, and the, the new Wonka prequel as well mm-hmm. is that they're being advertised as straight up either prequels or reimaginings when yep. at their source they are musicals. Uh, the Color Purple and Mean, mean Girls especially were pri- previously musicals that are being adapted for the big screen and uh, and Wonka is just like a straight up musical but they're not being advertised like that like there are yeah. no original songs in the trailer and I guess they it's weird because like musicals I feel like do pretty well I, I feel like they're kind of difficult to sell necessarily but mm-hmm. I still feel like there is a market for them and I, I think it's kind of interesting that that at, that angle is being removed from the marketing promotion too. I, I find that kind of interesting, but I don't know. I mean, I, I I'm planning on seeing the mean girls musical like in a couple of, in a week or so when it comes out, um, maybe not immediately, but I will watch it at some point. Cause I like the original film so much, but I don't know. I, the, the trailer for the, the new mean girls doesn't really give me the same good vibes that the original did. It seems a little bit, uh, I don't know. It just seems a little bit too Gen Z ish and TikTok ish. Mm. And I feel like it's trying to appeal really, really hard to a specific younger demographic where I don't think the original Mean Girls is only enjoyed by that group of people. I feel like it's enjoyed by everybody in, a, in from all walks yeah. of life, you know? <laughs> See, that that's what worries me because I remember even reading too that Tina Fey tried, she did specific things to try and not date the movie. Like that's why she even has the, the term that's so fat. She didn't want to use an actual, um, an actual slang term because- you know, that makes it easily identifiable as a mean girl thing. If she would have used a very trendy word at the time period, it would have dated it pretty hard. And she was trying to avoid that. And I, I'm making I like assumptions that, yeah. here, but I'm just I'm just worried. I have that same worry with the reimagining, uh, whatever you want to call it, a mean girl. So where if they try too hard to make it trendy or toward a specific audience, it's just going to ruin the whole magic of the original, I feel like. Yeah, and also another thing I want to point out too, I at first when I saw the trailer, I was like, oh, that's cool. They brought Tim Meadows back and Tina Fey is reprising her old role. And then I was like, oh, but I was all, and then I remembered I was also really excited when they brought James Earl Jones back for The Lion King 2019 <laughs> as well. And and we yeah. know how that turned out. So yeah, that that alone doesn't sell me on this, but I I don't know. We'll see what happens. It's, it's coming from different directors. So Waters is not returning, obviously, but <laughs> um, Faye- wrote the original teleplay. So we'll see what happens, but I don't know. I'm planning on seeing it. I'm not expecting the world, but we'll see what happens, I guess. <laughs> no, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um. So what is your score for Mean Girls? Yeah. So for kind of those reasons I mentioned previously, I think Mean Girls overall still really holds up. It's legacy still felt today, and it's arguably one of the best teen comedy dramas due to the clever writing, fantastic mixed characters. So yeah, I gave Mean Girls a seven out of ten, but I think it's a it's a strong seven. It's closer to an eight than a six for me. 
Yeah, same here. Um, coming from someone that grew up with this film, has watched this film dozens of times at this point. It's very much a comfort watch. I give it an eight. I have given it a nine in the past because I've I had really good experiences watching it in the past. On this rewatch, I lowered it to an eight, but it's closer to a nine than a seven. I, I really think it's very, I think it's whip smart, very funny. A lot of the performances, like if there's the voice and the vision by Waters and Faye going into this, I think really sell it. And the fact that it holds up so much better than so many other teen comedies around this era. I think of films like Sleepover and New York Minute. And there are people that are furious with me listening to this. Like, how dare you insult New York yeah. Minute? That was that movie was my bestie. But it's like, it, you can get so much worse than this movie. Like, so oh, much yeah. worse. And I, I feel like it, I feel like the top of the crop should, the cream should rise to the top, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it, it was a very pleasant rewatch. It was one of those things to where I forgot how much I enjoyed this movie on, you know, revisiting it. So, yeah, I definitely didn't hate my experience watching it. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So, Eric, what do you say we get into this episode's main topic movie? Yeah, let's do it. So, for this episode's main topic movie, Eric has chosen Eric Vallette's 2008 film, One Missed Call, for us to talk about. And just as a reminder, as with all of our main topic movies, this will be a full spoiler discussion. So, if you don't want to be spoiled for One Missed Call, the 2008 one, not the 2003 one, this is your last chance to stop. Eric, would you like to describe the plot of One Missed Call? Oh, boy, would I love to. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Several people start receiving voicemails from their future selves, messages which include the date, time, and some of the details of their deaths. Now, as I mentioned at the end of the last episode, this is a remake of the 2003 Japanese film with the same English title directed by Takashi Miike. But for the sake of this conversation, we're going to primarily be focusing on the 2008 remake, which, uh, as I also alluded to in the last episode, did not sit well with critics. And despite it being a moderate success at the box office, bringing in $45.8 million against a $20 million budget, some have claimed one missed call as, quote, the worst J-horror or Japanese horror remake to be released, which is a pretty strong claim, honestly. Um, one missed call did win a Moldy Tomato Award in 2008 after receiving its 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Woof. Mm-hmm. So (laughs) this was a blind watch for both of us. But before we get into the plot, I mean, do you think One Missed Call, the remake, deserves the title of worst J-horror remake to be released? I mean, based on what you know and what you've seen? I know that's kind of a a loaded question there. (laughs) I'm trying to think, what other J-horror films have you seen? I can think of The Grudge and The Ring, and I think... Those, uh, if we're talking about the, those are really the only three that I've seen, both the original and the remake of. So, like, fair, I, I will yeah. say, I think The Ring and The Grudge both have their own things about them that make them work for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, I think Gore Verbinski for The Ring um, and whoever directed The Grudge for the American remake, I think they both do a pretty decent job of recapturing the feel and also have their own sort of sense of style that goes along with them. But I don't necessarily think one is better than the other. I, I don't really mm-hmm. think much of The Ring or The Grudge, the original Japanese versions of them, but I, I admire their craft and I'm glad they exist and I'm glad that there are other cultures that are experimenting in horror, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't necessarily speak to me. Um, yeah. yeah, which I can also say for One Miss Call, honestly, the original Takashi Miike didn't really, I watched that before I watched this one because I wanted a unique perspective and I wanted to go through them both and compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. And if you're thinking that this is going to be a conversation of, oh, like how dare those American devils ruin the brilliant version, <laughs> the original uh, vision and masterful whatever of 
the original film of Takashi Miike. You're this. This is not what this is. Honestly, yeah. I, I really don't think that the original one, Miss Call, is really that special. A lot mm-hmm. of people that I read in reviews of, at the time in 2003 said that it almost felt like a stereotype of a lot of Japanese horror because it's so predictable. Yeah. And something that some reviews didn't mention really, really long feeling and boring. Like this film <laughs> is like under two hours long. It's an hour uh, 50, I think it mm-hmm. feels like three hours. I, I don't understand why the pacing and tone and just style itself is just so overbearing and long and I I just could not get into it for the life of me I I gave the original 2003 a 4 out of 10 I was going for a 5 and then I was just like oh my god by the last half hour I was just so out of it because it was taking so long to get through that I I lowered it to a 4 so yeah this isn't a case of oh how dare they ruin this masterpiece no Mm -hmm. it it really isn't a case like that I if you like the original totally understand that respect your opinion but at the same time though I just could not get into it so I, I can't really defend it on the basis of it's having its own original day in the sun and it just got ruined no but at the same time though the original is definitely much better than this american remake because this american remake is your average pretty stupid (laughs) shitty uh like january horror film it's it's very much a film that a studio invested in they realized how the hell we're gonna sell this piece of shit now we'll just dump (laughs) it in january no one's gonna even notice and yet it still made 45 million dollars because they just went with oh hey it's very much what the bye-bye man did and boogeyman Mm -hmm. did and all these like really bad mid-2000s horror movies did yeah it's just kind of you know it just fuck it just dump it in in january no one's gonna care it'll (laughs) be forgotten just as quickly as it's in theaters and uh, it still works because it made money but yeah. because of, of that marketing ploy. But yeah, that's basically my thoughts of the original compared to the new one. But what were your big takeaways between the original and the remake? Yeah, so I, I share a lot of the same thoughts you did. I did in reverse order. I actually watched the American remake first and then I just okay. watched the original last night. And yeah, I share a lot of the same sentiments. I wasn't... I wasn't overly impressed with the original either, which is such a shame because on paper, this sounds like such an interesting concept. And I thought for sure after watching the American remake that I was like, oh, it'll be fine. I'll just watch the original. It'll be so much better. I'll have a great experience doing it. I'm like, I can't really get into this either. I was like, it's, they're both <laughs> just kind of boring to me. I I, I gave, uh, yeah, I gave the original a very similar score. I, I was a little more optimistic. I gave it a five out of 10, but it's still one of those okay. where I'm like, it's, very middle of the road to me. There's certain aspects I appreciate, I appreciated of it and I thought were kind of cool, but then other spots that I just think really fall flat. It's so strange to me because I noticed in both versions, I just never really felt that tension that I was hoping. Like you'd think with a concept like this, I'd be on the edge of my seat, like knowing the exact time and circumstance or, or a vague circumstance of this person's death, but the exact time it's going to happen. What's the lead up to it? And, I don't know. It's it's so hard because I never really felt that tension the whole time. It all it just kind of felt all routine, run of the mill almost. It's I just I don't know. No real emotion kind of came out of me in either version. <laughs> yeah, because honestly, like looking at the the letterbox scores for both of these films, the 2008 film has a 1.8 out of five, which is like mediocre to bad, mm-hmm. and then the uh, the original has a 3.2 out of five, which is pretty good. I mean, it's it's yeah. somewhere between pretty good and good. I mean, some it has a decent following but i mean it's not like a film uh like um it doesn't have like a huge following like the ring or the grudge where people really really love the original and then the the remake just sort of squashed it in a way it, i really don't think it's a case of 
So, which is a shame because I feel like um, Mike is a good director. Takashi Mike, who directed the original, he's mm-hmm. a good director. And it, even though this film doesn't really speak to me, he is well known for directing better films like Thirteen Assassins, Audition, and Itchy the Killer, which are warmly received by critics and audiences. So, I think it because uh, and um, which is a shame because you expect like really good things from a a very consistently good director. And I don't. I think this was just the case of. Oh sure, like it, it's good enough, sort of thing. Like it, it sells. It, 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 you can sell it to people, but it's not something that people are going to remember long after the fact. No, for sure, and and yeah, um, I'm glad you mentioned about Takashi Miike's other films. I mean, I've only seen Audition out of that list, but Audition rocks. Uh, everyone listening to this, just just pause the podcast right now and just watch Audition. Don't even listen to it, or just have us playing the background. <laughs> no, <laughs> Audition do rocks. Like a, do so like a take. Do a TikTok side by side where the top yeah. is our podcast and the bottom is like just a Grand Theft Auto five footage yeah. of trucks falling down of, of, a, of a maze or something. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But um but yeah, yeah. this podcast goes really this podcast goes really well with subway surfers, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. Oh god, no, pretty much. But uh so some fun facts I wanted to bring up that I thought were really interesting after the fact. So apparently, while in preparation for uh for the 2008 American remake of One Miscalled, director Eric Vallette apparently never watched the original Japanese version and asked the actors not to watch it either, which I found so interesting because there are so many comparisons to where I would never come to that conclusion that they never watched the original because there's there's so many similarities with the plot points and the pieces and the character setups and that I don't know. If that fun fact is actually true, grab from IMDb, that was like, that's really interesting to me <laughs> you know that is interesting and i i kind of do respect it because i feel like honestly it almost feels like he's sort of like preparing the audience like he's preparing audience expectations in a way like saying like oh don't watch the original because if we claim ignorance and say we never saw it then we can get away with if, if this movie sucks ass because say well at least it was our original vision sort of yeah. thing. <laughs> you know what i mean like it's right. not like we were just blatantly ripping off the original sort of thing i, I don't know it that just seems like he's putting a band-aid on something that doesn't need it but that's yeah still interesting i guess it kind of feels like a like a fail safe thing like it's just like you wash your hands of it like well i mean hey it was a reimagining i never claimed this to be a never exact remake i don't know <laughs> i told hey listen i told when they when the zero percents came in yeah i told them do not watch the original yeah. that has a what a 42 percent yeah pretty much like well and oh and this can definitely be felt in the end result but uh apparently the original writer andrew clavin has mentioned several times that he he wrote the script under the assumption that it was going to be a horror comedy and was surprised mm-hmm. when the end result was a quote-unquote serious horror film so a lot of that disconnect can kind of be felt in the tone, I feel like, to where it just feels all over the place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, there's some stuff, I guess, that were supposed to be jokes, but they just don't feel like jokes at all. It just feels like very bad execution. <laughs> Yeah, honestly, like a lot of the, there's a lot of scenes in this movie that just don't really go anywhere. Like, and, and this film for a film that they claim not to have watched the original, like uh, obviously the screenwriter did. There's a lot yeah. of similarities in like the plotting of the film itself. I guess like if the actors don't want to watch it, that's one thing because they don't want to take cues or emotional beats from the original. I guess that's you could say that, but I don't know. This plot is pretty straightforward, like a one to one. But it's yeah. a half hour shorter than the original, so I can give it that at least. Yeah, I mean, I will say, yeah, the it's it, I do find that interesting because I feel like 
I feel like the American remake moves at a pretty efficient pace. Uh, and I feel like be- because of that, like there's no real character depth. Like they're, they're all just kind of vessels. I mean, kind of, well, okay. I do think a film like final destination does a better job of doing this to where they, you at least in some way care a little bit more about the characters for one reason or another. Like there's a little bit more depth and nuance to them because I think we just kind of see some more interactions or something going on to where, you care a little bit more about their outcome or there's a little bit more mystery behind it when this is mm-hmm. a firm, this is the day time they're going to die. And it's pretty established pretty early on that this is going to happen. So, um, so it, you just kind of expect all this to happen. And yeah, like I said, getting to my original point, the American version moves at a pretty brisk pace and there's no real depth in many of the characters but surprisingly the original doesn't really establish much character depth either and they somehow stretch it out a half hour longer so i I don't know (laughs) i can't i was gonna say i can't really say that i felt for any of these characters in the the remake but i didn't really all i also didn't really feel for them in the original either i not that i'm that heartless i just didn't really feel a lot of personality or defining traits from any of them that made me care if people lived or died you know what i mean it just feels like just generic whatever sort of yeah. characters and dialogue and and I, I, it's funny because we're, we're just coming off of our, that Mean Girls discussion and I note I noted in my Mean Girls discussion the best thing about that film is Tina Fey's voice in the script it really comes through and it's really felt and you can watch that movie over and over and over again there is just there's no voice in this movie no personality the, in the original there's some style and I get where Mike is coming from and setting up some of these like longer stretches of emotional turmoil going in within the characters and it um, it it affected the pacing, obviously, but I can still understand it. This film is just like just the most generic, whatever, who gives a shit, like teen comedy, like teen comedy, teen thriller that you've seen a thousand times. It's coming out in January. Who gives a shit? It's just there's nothing to it. It just there's not a thing that I'll remember about this movie outside of like maybe two or three funny things and one <laughs> good performance that we'll get into as we get into the discussion. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And bef- yeah. And, and I know I'm definitely about to get into the plot and explain some of these uh, points a little more eloquently, but it's funny. We just talked about mean girls before this too, because yeah, I mean the juxtaposition between the two movies, because mean girls has such memorable fleshed out characters. Each one has their own personality. Like if those characters were inserted into a movie like this, I feel like it would have succeeded in a way because not, I mean, okay. It it still has its other faults, but um, characters where I can't, where I care more about the outcome of them. I feel like I'd be a little bit more invested when to feel the tension a little bit more, but these are all just very run of the mill generic characters with no yeah. beats or personalities to them. And I feel like then you're just kind of watching them <laughs> slowly go. Yeah. Why would I care? Cause like that's something in horror that I feel like a lot of directors forget to care or a lot of screenwriters forget to write in because these characters are dying in front of you in like, hor- like horrific ways but you don't remember, like, you remember how they died. You don't remember, like, who they were before yeah. they died. And that's a big problem because right. I, I I think there's this real hesitance in horror to forget that that people forget, yeah, you, it sucks when a character dies that you really like and it, make, it makes you sad that something happens to them. Like, you want to feel a personal conflict with them and write them in a way that makes them identifiable and you want to see them. Like if you feel it's not a bad thing to kill off a character that you liked because it will, I don't know if it's done in the right way, you can really sell the emotional turmoil and it makes your film more memorable. This is just like, mm-hmm. you're going to forget about it the second you turn it off. 
Oh yeah, pretty much. Like, um, <laughs> no, it, it's bad. Cause even like going back and writing my notes, it's just like, I, I, it's, I lost track of characters so easily. Cause I was like, none of them are memorable. I mean, like, no, I, ugh. but anyway, uh, so anyway, getting into the plot of this, the film opens with a paramedic res- uh, paramedic rescuing a young girl from a fire at St. Luke's Hospital. When the paramedic asks about the girl's whereabouts, she doesn't respond. Then the film cuts to undergraduate student Shelley Baum, played by Megan Good, studying by her koi pond with her cat while talking on the phone. <laughs> Cat's meowing and acting a bit strange. Yeah, this opening scene is very interesting. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Shelly heads over to the koi pond to investigate and a, a hand appears out of the koi pond and pulls Shelly into the water. Then the hand comes back out and grabs a cat as well. <laughs> it's, oh my God. But uh, yeah, anyway, a few days later, college student Beth Raymond and Leanne Cole, played by Shannon Sosaman and Azura Sky, respectively, discuss Shelly's funeral. Um, Leanne's cell phone rings a lullaby type ringtone, which she claims isn't her normal ringtone. They discover it's a call from Shelly, who just drowned a few days ago. And Leanne opens her phone to hear an eerie voicemail of herself dated a future date of June 12th at 10, 17 p.m. Leanne starts having a weird hallucinations after seeing people with strange faces or millipedes crawling in various places. Leanne calls Beth while returning from a study session and in, in her rambling ends up repeating the same words she said in that voicemail from the future. So naturally Beth is concerned. She rushes to her location, but it's too late as Leanne falls off an overpass and is struck by a train. And with Leanne's body lying there on the tracks, a red candy pops out of her mouth and her hand dials a number on her phone. So, okay. I know I threw a lot out there, um, but <laughs> it's a lot of movie, but uh, it's a lot of movie, but so it's little, really it, 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 so yeah. little happens in this movie that a paragraph, a minute of paragraph text seems like a fucking freight train. No, itself, like straight you know up. I mean? that, like, that was all probably like the first, 15 minutes of this movie like it moves like i said it moves at a very brisk pace to where you barely have any semblance and idea of characters and then bam they're dead basically so and that's the thing if you're yeah. gonna make a bad american remake i'd rather it be shorter and efficient than drawn just as drawn out as yeah. the original because that's even worse honestly like i yeah that is one minor compliment and i it comes with an asterisk next to it it this movie is more efficient than the original but the original has so much style and personality and that I do kind of give it, I give the original the points for that because it actually is taking risks where this is just like bland who gives a shit, like just get it, get through it. Come on. Like just fast forward the shit. We don't really care. We're a January movie sort of thing. So yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's very frustrating. <laughs> and um, the opening scene in the hospital so funny. I was like, okay. I was like in like this movie. Most of this movie is boring as shit and I don't care about it. Yeah. But the opening scene is so ridiculous. There's no consistency in the tone of this hospital burning down. No. Something where everyone is typically on the same page, frantic, frustrated, scared. Like you could have made everyone have that same tone, but it's weird because others are frantically trying to put out the fire with this hose. Others are just talking and standing around doing nothing. <laughs> Some are getting like modestly bandaged up. Like there's no urgency at all, except for these two people trying to put out a fire. And I was like, what is happening? In this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very strange. And you're trying to make sense of the whole situation. Then it's a hard cut to, you know, a woman studying by her koi pond. It's like, okay, uh, I'm sure they're going to come back to that at some point, maybe. Like, it's one of those, you know, I guess red herring things they introduce early. It's like, okay, that's probably going to be something later on. Um, so I'll store that in the back of my head. 
and I guess just wait for it to come to fruition. And I mean, it, eventually things, pieces do come together, but it's, it's one of those hard transitions where, okay, uh, I, I don't even know what to make of that last scene. Now we're on something completely different and <laughs> you're trying to make sense of what's going on there. And then it's like, oh, woman's pulled into the koi pond. Oh, cat's pulled in too. And then hard, another hard transition. I was like, what the hell? Every cat sound effect was taken from a hard drive somewhere. Like no cat like ever made that noise that exists sort of thing. Like there's like, it's the most stock sound effect you ever could have found. Like I'm bummed that the cat died because I like cats, but at the same time though, yeah, like, I don't know when animals die. It's just like in movies like this, it's just like a sick ploy to get some emotion, but yeah, not yeah. In this movie. Yeah. That's, that's all it really was because my overthinking ass, I was just like, wait, the cat never received a voicemail though. What the hell? <laughs> Yeah, good point. Honestly, yeah. If you don't have a, I guess if you don't have a phone, then you can't miss the call. So I, I, I know guess that's so I, I don't say. know. I don't know. Hole in the plot. I mean, there's a lot you could poke in this, but uh, yeah, there was one of the random thoughts I had. I was like, they just they just killed the cat for show. What the heck? <laughs> for everyone keeping score at home, every single character uses a Boost Mobile flip phone. So there you go. Oh yeah, I was gonna say. Well, the, if the budget's low, I can get <laughs> why they would use Boost Mobile sort of thing. They just went to a Kmart five minutes before shooting. Hey, can we get sixty phones and just like just whatever basic minute plan you have? Just go ahead and put it on there. As someone that worked at Kmart and set up those fucking phones, yeah, like, that's I feel for everyone who had to use those things. Uh, and yeah. yeah, the cinematography of this movie is another thing I wanted to point out. It's it's not the worst looking movie I've ever <laughs> seen, but it's definitely like halfway. It's it You can see the budget on the screen. Like it, oh, it's yeah. halfway. Hold on a second. <coughs> it's halfway a sci-fi channel movie and the look of a feature film. Um, it's in this weird in-between that I can't really get myself out of. Like there's nothing really to the shot composition. It's all sort of just a variety of, I don't know, it's just a small variety of shots and you get them the same sort of delivery over and over and over again. There's really not a lot to it. So yeah. yeah. And um, the effects are not good either. Holy shit. Like this movie came out in 2008 and the effects look like Doom 2004. Yeah. Like this movie looks like it it already dates itself pretty, in a pretty huge way. So yeah. Oh um, yeah. And and uh, the the way that these teens talk to each other too, like it's one step below something like your standard teen show, like Degrassi or One Tree Hill. It just has a lot less personality, and there's a lack of a unique perspective that's coming from these characters. They all blend together. I yep. really did not like the main actress in this movie, um, uh, <laughs> Shannon Sossamon. I yeah. really like. I don't know why you picked her for the lead because she could have easily <laughs> been replaced by any other teen character. And yeah. I don't think you would have really noticed the huge difference <laughs> in what she provides. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think some of the characters that got killed off early actually do a better job in acting that actually was like, okay, they're actually not bad. Like uh, to show mm -hmm. some sort of, you know, emotion and I guess personality in there. So it was like, yeah. Um, and, and then it's a shame because then they're killed off pretty early anyway. And then it's like, eh, all right, well, and on to the next one, I guess. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah. But anyway, what's the what's the next part of the plot? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, now we're at Leanne's funeral. The girl who got hit by the train for those keeping score at home and Leanne's ex-boyfriend, Brian Sosa, played by Johnny Lewis, departs after experiencing similar hallucinations. And outside of a coffee shop, he shows Beth Leanne's postmortem voicemail dated minutes away from then saying something to the effect of, oh, I'd lose my head if it wasn't screwed on. And then like clockwork. Mm. <laughs> As Brian's about to leave <laughs> after forgetting his phone, he says the whole, 
I'd lose my head if it wasn't screwed on. And then, bam, a tank explodes at a construction site across the street. No, rebar impales Brian's torso and <laughs> red candy pops out of his mouth as he collapses. I I will say that was probably the funniest uh, death to me. <laughs> that was a pretty funny death. I did like that. Um, yeah. yeah they, like the effects are not convincing. Like I said earlier, are not convincing in the slightest. And yeah. <laughs> also, like if you hear yourself saying something along those lines, then don't say it. Yeah. Don't I, fucking say uh, it. I had that I, same. I don't thought. understand. Okay. Like you're getting a pre you're, I'm sorry. You're getting a preview of what it is and it happens like through it's like in wish upon where like Ugh. like the dumbest shit happens over and over and over again and then she realizes by like the sixth wish that now oh yeah maybe it's the thing i've been doing the whole movie maybe that's why this shit is happening <laughs> yeah but maybe you could recognize that so much sooner especially when you're getting these voicemails like hey don't fucking say the thing you're going to say like does that change the timeline like i don't yeah, know like, no, it's just I, lazy uh, i had that same thought and i mean we never really get a clear answer on this because I, the thought occurred to me. It's like, okay, is the, is the word like a, a is basically the phrase, like the password into your death, basically. Or if you just mm -hmm. don't say those words, do you not die? I mean, it's never really explicitly said, but because every single character re inevitably repeats those words, that's something I feel like the original actually does better because uh, the second death in that movie is, is, I guess mild spoilers. The second death in that movie is very similar in a sense to this one, to where it's just minutes away. It's like, Hey, this is what I said a few minutes from now, except for that one's a lot more generic. And that one's much more understandable of just saying and not thinking much about it. Cause it's literally, Oh shit. Mm -hmm. I forgot. How often do you say that every day? Like that's a pretty normal everyday sentence. But in this American remake, he's like, committing to the bit saying the dad joke i'd lose my head if it wasn't screwed on it's like dude just don't so say that don't like you just have you seen uh anyway have you seen any of the final destination movies i have yeah i've seen the first uh, okay uh, first five okay yeah. yeah there's only five yeah oh uh, yeah i've seen them all then Okay, cool. So I wanted to bring those movies up because those movies do a very similar thing where they're given sort of premonitions of what's to come in a way, like obviously like the premonition itself. And um, you find out after the fact that there is a design to how these people are dying. And if they are able to cheat death and skip the order, then at, especially in the first film, they think, oh, hey, like once I'm skipped, like then this thing will haul me over and then we'll be out of death's like order or whatever. And then um, spoiler for the first Final Destination, I guess, is that it eventually just comes back around and death tries to kill them again in a new way. So they're basically always on edge forever until they actually die. That is explained really well in, the, in that movie, especially when you consider that film was given like an extensive rewrite to cover cover its tracks a little bit and explain that a little bit. And it, it there's so much more, even if those movies aren't the best, they are the fourth one notwithstanding because it's the worst movie I've ever seen. The other four, though, I, I do actually think those movies deserve a little bit of credit, even if they're not the greatest movies, because they actually do take the time to look into the the lot the logistics of what they're actually proposing is happening in this world where this is just like oh it's one explanation boom if you hear yourself you're gonna say it and you're gonna die okay that's not fun we're just waiting around especially when we try to tie it into this hospital bullshit at the beginning like it yeah. just, just made me fucking infuriated <laughs> no I, I i know i agree because yeah i i haven't rewatched the final destination movies in a long time but like those deaths actually, even though I haven't seen them in forever, they're very memorable and stick with you. Like, I know there's like those memes floating out there of like, I still don't drive behind, you know, uh, logger trucks or whatever because of Final Destination. It's like, 
Honestly, yeah, mm-hmm. I catch myself. I don't do it either. And it's like, yeah, I mean, either. I always just go you. right around them sort yeah. of thing. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where like, even if the characters are just sort of stock types, you do remember how they die because they're like, they're interesting Rube Goldberg sort of ways of dying. And they're like things that, oh God, wouldn't that be terrifying if I was killed that way? No, like this is just like PG, you just get PG-13 to death and then all of a sudden you're you're gone. Like that's it. You don't really care about the characters or the way they die. It's just boring nothing. Yeah, no, that that pretty much sums it up. A uh, boring nothing for ninety plus minutes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But anyway, uh, next part of the plot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so yeah, uh, the next day, Beth meets police detective Jack Andrews, played by Edward Burns, who mentions that his sister Jean interned with Shelley at St. Luke's and died two days prior. So they determine the events are related. Beth consoles her friend Taylor Anthony, played by Anna Claudia Talencon. Anna Claudia Talencon. I know I'm going hard with Sounds right. (laughs) Mention these actors and actresses. (laughs) Anyway, uh, you know, she's understandably distraught by the preceding events and feels like she'll be the next victim. And they both remove the batteries from their cell phones. But that night, Taylor's cell phone still rings, which opens to a video of her apparent demise. Um, The following morning, Jack and Beth research uh, geriatric nurse Marie Layton, who they discover is the originator of the calls and find the autopsy report of her eldest daughter, Ellie, who died from an acute asthmatic episode. The, the file mentions no bruising, but evidence of past scars with an attached CPS file for further consultation. So it also states that Jean, a psychiatric nurse, questioned Marie at St. Luke's and noted nine admissions between April and May for Ellie and her sister, Laurel, concerning several causes. So Beth assumes that Marie had a mental illness where she believes a person she's caring for has an illness, but they're not really sick. So, yeah, I know I threw a lot out there, but it's kind of establishing the lore and the originators and trying to find some some logic behind the sequence of events. But, yeah, did you have any takeaways from the plot or what it's trying to establish here? Man, I don't remember any of that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that about sums it up. Honestly, as I'm like, I'll be honest, as I'm reading through this, because I, I kind of put everything together with my notes and and doing a play-by-play with the plot, I'm like, Fuck, when I was actually watching this, I do not remember it so eloquently like that. Like, I do, but I don't, because it's so, like... It's so poorly communicated. It, it is. It's very poorly communicated to where, and unless it's explicitly written out after the fact, like, okay, yeah, I mean, I get what they were trying to convey, but, man, like, in the moment watching that on screen, like, it's so hard to retain most of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have we talked about the American Miracles guy yet? The like the Ray Wise performance. No. Like I feel like we haven't even touched on that. And no, I, we haven't I, gotten to I, that I, yet. But that's uh, but we yeah, this is shortly before then because um, God, I gotta I gotta read back through my notes to see who the character's name is. That's a a indication of how non memorable they are. But uh, yeah, Taylor Anthony just just yeah, it's Taylor Anthony who ends up going on the show if i remember right like i said it's it's so hard to keep track of these characters they're they're literally vessels and it's so hard to keep track of their names because they're just barely introduced and they're dying (laughs) man i did not yeah i didn't write anything about that whole paragraph (laughs) that you just wrote about i literally just like when ray wise popped up on screen and we started getting into the american miracle stuff i was like okay like i'm getting back into this a little bit even if it's bad like everything that you mentioned i did not intake at all and I, I don't yeah. feel like I'm wrong for not because I really don't no. feel like anything <laughs> that you talked about had any big bearing on what was happening in the plot anyway so yeah I'm sorry I'm sorry to, to <laughs> ruin the vibes but man I don't have anything to say about that no you're fine I mean you're probably just upsetting the 10 people out there who will 
die on the hill of this movie, but. How many people gave this five stars on Letterboxd? I'm just curious. Now. I know, I'm curious on that 259? Damn. What the fuck? Okay, what are these people saying? I want to contact all reviews. 259 of these people and just be like, <laughs> I don't even, I have questions for them. Anyway. <laughs> um, let me just look at the first page of this shit. Um, okay, a five-star review. This film brings me back to my childhood. It'll always be a creepy but really good film. The ringtone always used to scare me, and it still does. Okay. Another review. <sighs> These people five need to stars. watch more Co- movies. I'm sorry. They just, yeah, also, God. every review is just like, man, like, oh, this it's is It's all nostalgia-based. Well, that It's all just nostalgia-based. Mm. Another review. Kind of traumatized me when I was a kid. That's the yeah, review. nostalgia-based. We, we need to fucking gatekeep this website, man. I swear <laughs> to Christ. Um, I really want oh, to, sh- oh my God, I want to do a study on this now. Anyway. Oh, can I just read more reviews instead of I, ca- I kind of, I, I am welcome to this segue, honestly. <laughs> another review, another review. The baby was so cute and he had a phone. LOL, I just really liked the baby. Oh my, mm, these people are not credible, uh, I'm sorry. Another one, this movie is not good, I love it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that is, the, that is the most sensible review you have read. <laughs> You've read there. I can't even talk. That is the most sensible review oh, I've heard so far. Breathe. All right. Um, what else? I, I'm going to do a couple more. Um, equally as good as when I was 13. That's another Nostalgic one. Nostalgic-based, yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, such a good underrated... Okay, we actually have some criticism. Such okay. a good underrated film. Watch this with my mom a lot when I was younger. Again, just a nostalgic. That's all nostalgia-based. So watching it now is so nostalgic. Such a good horror movie. <sighs> the ringtone will always creep me out. I'm begging people to watch more movies. Oh my God. I'm fucking infuriated. So it sounds <laughs> like if you... if Yeah, it sounds like if you watch this when it first came out and then you revisited it later, you're just going to be more prone to liking it. It's like, oh, it reminded me of when I watched it when it first came out. Like, watch it years later removed for the first time, and I want to see what those people think of it, if they actually still like it. Yeah, I just, I can't, Uh, I can't get behind what these people are seeing. Um, As bad, (laughs) every single one is just like, it scared me when I was 13. That's literally why people are giving it five stars. Go fuck Uh, yourselves if you're one of of those. Do I just go into the next part of the plot? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, that's it. Do you want to just go into the next part? (laughs) That was a fun little segue, honestly. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so anyway, well, our our boy comes out. TV producer Ted Summers, played by our boy Ray Wise. Approaches Taylor about having an exorcism on his TV show, thinking that will help solve the issues they've been having because of how spiritual energy can be transferable via cell phones. And I do want to interject and say real quick, that is actually a very real theory. So like, okay, I do give it some credit for having some, uh, I guess, realism, uh, making it more grounded with that, because that's actually a very real thing if you're weird like me and are until, anyway, I, I don't want to get on a big rabbit hole of that, but. Anyway, this yeah. all backfires, though, because an unfor- unseen force fatally chokes Taylor during the recording. And uh, Beth's phone then sounds with a voicemail dated for tomorrow. So Beth assumes that finding Marie will save her, so she ventures to St. Luke's to encounter Jack, and encounters Jack. As they enter the operating room, Marie's spirit ejects and renders Jack powerless while Beth is trapped in a room. Beth throws her phone across the room where it knocks the air duct cover loose, revealing a crawl space. And then inside, she discovers the charred corpse Marie clutching a cell phone, which awakens. And then after pursuing Beth, Marie weeps and murmurs, forgive me. And then Beth tells Jack that Marie might have brought 
her there to protect her. Yeah, like I said, even still reading through this, like I I remember it, but I don't you know, type thing. Like it's so <laughs> in in one ear, out the other, I feel like. Yeah. Did, did you have kind I, of I a wanted, similar reaction? Yeah. Honestly, hearing all that, like I, the only thing I remember was the whole thing with Ray Wise, which is taken <laughs> from the original film in a way, because like, I, I actually think that, angle of the American remake is actually done a little bit better in this film than in the original because the original film it's just basically like your average sort of Japanese TV station like Japanese news is done so much differently over there than it is over here and just the way that like a crazy and sensational um it is sort of thing like I, I'm like that's fine with me but at the same time though I like how it's sort of rewritten so it's more of like in there's almost an evangelical backdrop to his performance, which makes which makes sense because he would go on to do a lot of religious based stuff like God's Not Dead 2 and things like that. But his performance does stand out like he actually does feel like a character. And there's a reason for why he is motivated to get her on his show so he can sort of. Um, sort of propagate the, and fearmonger a little bit to his like evangelical. So there's like a little bit of an American religious commentary going through that sect of that section of the film, and I didn't mind it. I, I was actually like, okay, this actually could work in a better directed, better communicated film, and actually does work as a pretty decent commentary in a way. Um, but yeah, that's really the only good thing I can say about this movie is that Ray Wise actually feels like a character and I like some of the religious commentary. That's the reason my score isn't as low as it could be. And there are way worse horror movies than this. But at the mm -hmm. same time, though, man, like. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, Ray Wise was a highlight for me, honestly, too. I don't know. Yeah, for similar reasons. I actually have jotted down in my quote in, in my uh, section for memorable quotes that I have written out. Literally one Ted Summers line, make sure Jesus is centered. I, I don't know why that just stood out to me. That, that was, funny. was funny. I liked, I wrote that line down too. It was pretty funny. <laughs> like, like, I don't know. Yeah. Just trying to make it into a whole spectacle about, I mean, in the, in the original does that too, to a certain extent where it's trying to make it a whole spectacle about, uh, you know, what's going to happen. It's saying when she's going to die. And it's almost just like depressing watching the original one because they're literally like counting down her death. Like, it's like, she is going to die in 20 minutes. What's going to happen? <laughs> it's like, God, this like is depressing. Like, I would not want to spend my last 20 minutes of life in this dingy ass station on live TV. <laughs> no, no, I would not. Either. Like, and I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also like, um, I command you to come out of the cell phone, like, and what Ray is doing, like, on, like, what this priest is doing to try and, like, exercise her, and all the religious statues start to come to life, which was very funny, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, this, uh, this, the, the actress, Shan, who is playing, um, the girl getting exercised, barely scared, like, the other girl is just uh, kind of confused uh, about what's going on, and not, right. like, there's, like, demons popping up all over the place, and she can barely crack a, like, a, like a concerned face. It, it's just very frustrating and annoying, but yeah, <laughs> that's really the last like concrete opinion I have about this movie. I did write notes, but I'm just yeah. over it. What else had like, what else uh, jumped out at you? Maybe it'll sort of respark my interest. <laughs> um, for that spot spe specifically, not a ton. I mean, all right. Uh, I don't know. It, it just like, yeah. I mean, like I, I appreciate that they're trying to, establish the connection and make it cohesive and and build the lore and connect everything together. But like I said, it's so in one ear and out the other, like any sort of lore and anything they're trying to establish, I feel like it's so poorly communicated that unless you really dig into it and look back on it later, it's, it's, it's so hard. Like if I didn't have 
if I didn't do this research and look up these plot points and cross reference the characters and you just ask me directly after the movie, oh, what did you think of this scene? Or what did you think of this aspect or this character? I'd be like, who? <laughs> like, I, I, I didn't, I honestly wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm looking through my notes and it's just uh, like a lot of scribbles of nothing. Um, just the yeah. things that were funny, like when she sees zombie faces at the library, there's a lot of drawn out shots of <laughs> her just walking around abandoned places, waiting. We're just waiting. So many shitty jump scares in this movie. Can we talk about that too? That are just like super <sighs> yeah. transparent and lame. Like uh, I was like really turned off by this movie. Yeah. Like the I, the jump scares weren't even like effective for me or anything either. Like nothing really got my heart rate going in this at all for this or no. really the original. I just I just like had the same stoic expression on my face throughout the whole time of both films like I just, I, I I don't know. Nothing not How much more plot do you have by the way? I just got this little paragraph we're we're so close. Uh Oh, I'm so happy. I'm so happy we're almost at an hour. I too, know. I literally yeah. <laughs> I literally wrote that in my notes like bear with, with me. We're so close to finishing this freaking thing. All right. So <laughs> at, So at Laurel's foster home, Jack uncovers a disc from the nanny cam embedded in the eye of Laurel's teddy bear. The footage reveals Ellie in, um incising Laurel with a knife in their bedroom. Marie enters shortly thereafter, discovering Ellie's abusiveness and rushed Laurel to the hospital. Ellie, locked inside, began pressing wheezingly on the inhaler, but was overwhelmed and collapsed, facing the future curses. Uh, basically, the, the, the things we see in the future curses, like the millipedes, uncanny doll of a mother with baby and the character hallucinations, the lullaby-esque music coming from the teddy bear, so everything's just kind of explained in this package. Ellie dies of asphyxia while dialing her mother's phone number. Laura reveals that though Ellie injured her, she always provided candies. Uh, realizing Ellie caused the curse, Jack drives to Beth's house, during which a colleague informs him of a new voicemail after he enters. Somebody knocks on the door, peeps through the, peers through the peephole, a knife stabs through it, killing Jack. Ellie appears and attacks Beth, but Marie's spirit intervenes, bounds Ellie and Jack's phone, and reconciles with Beth before disappearing. Jack's mouth spills a red candy, and his phone auto-dials. So, uh, we we did it. Congratulations to us. We got through everything. Um, this is what uh, happens when you go to the movies in January, people. <laughs> God. I mean... Did you have any thoughts on the conclusion uh, before I I give ramble? this movie a little bit of credit. It's terribly communicated, but I do give this movie a little bit of credit for trying to put some pieces together and try yeah. to make it a satisfying reveal where we do learn it was like because the mom abused this girl, locked her in, which ties in the candy that she was giving her, which is the candy from the death and thing like there are things that are trying, they're trying so hard to reincorporate and be clever, but it none of it works in the same way that it did in Mike's film. And we're just we're just being given answers. And, and I feel like we don't have to work for them at all. We didn't have to go through an experience outside of just waiting for things to happen. Like it, we're just being spoon fed crap. That's what it feels like. It doesn't feel like we deserved anything that happened. We're just being given like, here's what happened in the original. We're, we're just doing it now. And it's just very frustrating. And I was like shocked when the movie was done. When I saw that the movie had two minutes left when the like the film was like actually like starting to ramp up a little bit. I was like, wait, what's happening? It was like when. It was like when you and I watched The Devil Inside and it popped up with that stupid thing saying, go to this website for more information. Like it was, the, it was like almost that unsatisfying to me. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it's so funny because I was just thinking about this the other day. I feel like there was a big trend in like the early, like the mid 2000s to where it was a thing to like make a specific website 
about a horror movie or about something as part of the marketing campaign, you know, as, as a way to scare people or something like, oh, cursed website for this cursed movie. And mm-hmm. I don't know, just shit like that. And I, I feel like, yeah, and it just kind of reminded me of that. Like, oh, if you want another scare or another thing, go to this website. It's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, yeah, this movie was shitty least- enough as it is. <laughs> It honestly like two of my least favorite movie endings in history end that way. It, the Devil Inside and Apollo Eighteen, neither of which I would recommend people watch. They're uh, both the worst things ever made, and yeah. it's because the endings suck ass. So it's such a weird, cheap cop out that just feels like a. I, I don't even have words for it. It just, it just, it's like astonishingly bad. <laughs> both those movies ruined my evenings when I watched them. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I went to bed mad. Yeah, understandably so. Yeah, I mean, okay, I give give this film some credit for trying to to tie the pieces together, to link everything. Okay, this makes sense that the, this is where the red candies come in. This is where the weird, uh, even though it's poorly communicated, this is where the weird um, sounds of the inhaler come from, the weird faces that people are hallucinating seeing. Like, it's all from that as like a curse thing. So I guess you could say the twist, I guess, in this movie is that they think it's the mom. Uh, who was abusive to her children, but really it was that girl's sister who uh, caused all this. That was, I guess, the twist. But it's so poorly communicated that, like, you don't even really realize it's happening. It's not much of a twist if it's, like, you know, you're trying to figure out the movie from the beginning, and then it's just like, I don't even know what's going on. And, uh, oh, well, apparently they tried to lead you in this one direction, but then they just steered it to another direction, but it doesn't really feel like much of a twist. It just kind of feels like, I don't know. You're just watching the <laughs> the sequence of events unfold. I don't know. It happens, sort of thing. Yeah, they, yeah. There's like, like no mm. craft, no style, no perspective. It's just it's just bad. Honestly, I, I'm <laughs> struggling to defend the the score that I gave it, but I'm still gonna say yeah, that I'm gonna give it the score. I, I know the, the more <laughs> uh, the more I get thinking about it, the more I'm just like, was I too generous with my score? Even though my score is not great i was like was i still too generous with it i i don't know now (laughs) but yeah um um, can we talk by the way can we talk about this poster by the way yeah yeah for so for the longest time i i don't know i never really stared that much at it and so i was like i don't know it looked kind of weird if you just don't really think about it much but then i got i don't know the, the longer i look at it and try to make sense of it the the more i'm just like i don't really like it It looks like a godless Muppet. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I can really say about it's, it. I don't like yeah. these faces. I don't like I don't like these lips. I don't like the the, the cheek. I don't like it's how a, it looks. Yeah, it's a lot of just lips everywhere. It's very a lot of lips. A lot of lips. That's a lot of yellow. I don't it. like it. I don't like bad, bad, bad omens. Is there a better? I mean, looking at I'm, this is how I hate, much I hate this movie. I'm looking at other posters. It's all the same stupid face. There are eight yeah. posters. There's seven posters on Letterboxd. Like, let's, yeah, they're let's all have, the same stupid fucking face. <laughs> let's have someone make just a very stupid face and then and then recreate it and paste it in three different places. Like, love it, print it, do it. Yeah. It's like one okay. missed opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, this one is. Full of missed opportunities. My God. Uh, did you have any fun facts? I'm kind of done with this. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did have a couple jotted down. So uh, one was Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro was offered the chance to direct, but turned it down to work on Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, which would have been an interesting. I would have actually entertained a Guillermo del Toro directed one missed call. That would have been interesting. 
Yeah, definitely not with the script. I feel like if Guillermo also wrote it. I mean, yeah, but I think it at least would have had more personality. Oh my God, yes. Yeah, direction alone. If he would have written it, I feel like he could have made this work for sure. And honestly, it might have even been better than the original. But I, because I trust Guillermo as a director and as a conceptual artist and stuff. But yeah, not as is and definitely not with the screenplay. The screenplay is like, the direction's awful, but the, the screenplay is definitely not better either. Mm-hmm. And this director never went on to write anything else. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and yeah, speaking of which, so apparently Eric Vallette and Shannon Soseman have disowned this film and claimed to hate it. So we are not the only ones who hate it. Wait, wait, wait. Who dis- who dismissed it? Because I want to I want to know this. Eric Vallette and Shannon Soseman. The, so the the actress who played the lead role and the director claim they have disowned this film in retrospect and claim to hate it now. So fuck yeah, honestly, um, like, they're on board. <laughs> they don't even like it. Come on, guys. If that's not enough convincing that this film is not good, uh, there you go. The people in it don't even like it. I will say this: uh, the the director did go on to do other things, but nothing this high profile ever again. So I feel like he kind of just sort of uh, he wrote his own. He just kind of wrote himself a. <laughs> he just sort of like wrote his own future by publicly dismissing the film he did. And I am not seeing anything directed by a major studio here ever again. So I think yeah. that's kind of what happened. Oh, and added to the list, uh, Andrew Cla- uh, Clavin. If I'm pronouncing it right. Andrew Clavin, the screenwriter, also disowns and hates this film and, quote, uh, says each group, writer, director, actors and producer had a different vision of the film. And while any of them might have worked, they pulled in different directions. Preach true that you can feel you can feel that. How can everyone like blame like all three major parties responsible for the making of a film? How can all of you point? It's like that Spider-Man meme where they're oh, all yeah. pointing at the other Spider-Man. It's very funny. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of astonishing how like many people involved with the project hate it. Like no one was happy during the experience, I don't think. And you can feel that in the end result, too. Um, but yeah, do you want to get into final scores or did you have any other fun facts? Uh, uh, that's probably the last one that's worth mentioning. I have others, but they're really not that interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love this conversation. I mean, yeah, so that's, it's, yeah, there we go. So, uh, yeah. So final thoughts, uh, one missed call boasts an interesting premise on paper. However, through a mix of cheesy effects, poor character development and overall clash in artistic vision that can be felt in the final result. One Miss Call from 2008 is a film you can certainly miss. And for that, I'm giving One Miss Call a three out of 10. Yeah. Um, yeah, I gave it a two out of 10. I Just because I think Ray Wise is good and I like what they were trying to do with the religious angle. Everything else yeah. is either frustratingly incompetent and horribly miscommunicated. And uh, yeah, there's not much else I can say about this film. A, a two out of 10 because Ray is good. And there were some okay ideas with one minor subplot. And I feel generous giving it a two. <laughs> I know. I feel generous with my three as well. And I, I share the same. A three surprising. Posit- yeah, I share the same. Po- I think just because I I had some fun in the moment with some of the laughs I got from some of the deaths. And I bumped my score up slightly over that. But it's it's still not great. Like, it's still. Mm, yeah, even a three sounds generous. I just. I don't even know. <laughs> cool. Let's, you know what? Like 2023, let's leave this movie behind and never go back. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> cool. All right. All right. I'm glad so, we're on the same page. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hopefully go we go up with your recommendation. So what is your recommendation for the next episode? 
Yes. So one quick thing I wanted to say first, um, with us starting a new season, I had an idea for something I wanted to do for the fourth season to switch things up. I wanted to do a complete season where we only talk about movies that neither I nor Eric have already seen. And Eric agreed. So Mm -hmm. a full season of blind watches. Uh, I'm excited. I think this will be a fun experiment Uh, because Eric, you, whenever I pitch movies to you, you're always much supportive of doing movies where neither of us have watched it before. Um, Mm -hmm. What is your, um, what is your excitement and fascination with that concept? Yeah. I mean, I just really like getting well-rounded and it's funny because I find myself typically always watching things I've never seen before. Like it's almost rare for me to go back and watch a movie I've seen a thousand times, which sounds weird, but like, I always just want to knock something else off my list of something I haven't seen yet. So I have always had a fascination with that. And I know you still, you know, beat me like crazy with just watching a bunch of stuff religiously. And I know you're very well-rounded <laughs> in that regard too. So it's all, it almost feels cool too. When I find something you haven't seen either. Because uh, that yeah. that list is is shrinking more and more every year to where I've seen it, but you haven't. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, I don't know. So I've always had a fascination with just something new and seeing new things. And honestly, I I take the same approach to traveling and stuff too. That's I mean, I just I just uh, officially hit my fiftieth state visiting last year because I'm always excited to see new things and new places. Like um yeah so i always love breaking the norm and and exploring new things all the time by the way i don't know if you brought that up congratulations that's a really cool accomplishment and to do it before you're like honestly to do it just outside of 30 is very impressive so congrats on that that's really cool yeah thank you i know it's it's kind of a cool like lifetime goal that i like hit earlier than I, i never like expected myself to like hit that goal really ever i never really gave it much thought but then i just like going to places all the time so then just kept seeing more and more places. And I was like, shoot, I only have a few places left. Might as well knock them out. And then that's what I did last year. (laughs) Very cool. Well, with that being said, um, my next pick for um, the next episode is a film I've wanted to recommend for a while now, but until very recently, it's been very difficult for most audiences to even watch. Uh, However, it's been, it's since been added to the Criterion channel in the new year on January 1st as part of a collection of this director's greater works and filmography. So asking we shall receive, apparently, in that film is Ken Russell's 1971 film, The Devils. Uh, I don't know much about this film other than it's an intense graphic sexual depiction of Catholicism in the 17th century. It has a wild reputation, apparently, and I've heard nothing but overwhelmingly positive things about it. So this will be fun to check out. (laughs) Yeah, I literally know like nothing about this. So I'm yeah, I'm excited. Uh, To go from a 1.8 out of 5 to a 4.2 out of 5 is pretty dope. So I'm excited to talk about a movie with a a really enthusiastic fan base that we have we are not a part of yet. So we're excited to see what we can bring to a discussion like this. Yes. (laughs) Cool. So if you don't want to be spoiled for Ken Russell's 1971 film, The Devils, watch it before the next episode. We put new episodes out every two weeks and we'll be having a full spoiler discussion. And that is it. Thank you all so much for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to Films for the Void wherever you're streaming this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Films underscore Void. You can follow me, Landon, on Twitter at I Got Man, on Instagram at DuhFever, D-U-H Fever, and on Letterboxd at Landon DeFever. You can follow Eric on Twitter and Letterboxd at Eric with the hair and on Instagram at Eric with the beard. And remember, as always, if you want extra goodies, early episodes, and the possibility of picking a main topic movie, then head on over to patreon.com slash films underscore void to subscribe for just $3 a month. Eric, before we wrap up, do you have anything else you want to add? 
Uh, no, I think I'm good. Yeah, excited to to give this one a watch. I'm a fan of anything on Criterion, and I try to slowly tick those off. So, yeah, excited to give this one a watch. Hopefully, it will be better yeah. than one missed call. <laughs> Ooh, I really hope. Yeah, if we're talking about a movie uh, about Catholicism, I am hoping and literally praying that this movie <laughs> is better than the last one. So, with that being said, thank you all so much for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Take care. See ya.